This is a Sandy Boy Productions podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome to All Have Another Podcast with Lindsay Hyde. I'm your host, Lindsay, and I'm so grateful you are joining us today. This is episode 376, and my guest is Melindy Elmore. Melindy is a returning guest on the show. She came on the podcast in January of 2020 after she ran the Canadian record for the marathon at Houston in 224.50. So that was episode 222 of this podcast. Go back and listen to that first if you want to get a little intro to Melindy's story and journey to get to marathoning success. But Melindy just ran the Boston Marathon. She placed 11th, and you're going to hear about her experience in this episode. But she's got things to say about the course and her experience and the outcomes. And also, Melindy ran her first Olympic marathon this past year. She ran in Tokyo for Team Canada and placed 9th. Top 10 was her goal. We talk about that as well. I kind of wanted to have Melindy on after the Tokyo Olympics. I'm not sure why I didn't. So it was fun in this episode to get to talk about both Tokyo and the Boston Marathon, which, by the way, was just her fourth marathon. She's run Houston twice, Tokyo and Boston. Uh, You're going to hear about her road to get here a little bit in this episode. But again, go back to episode 222 because she's got a long history of track career and triathlon career. She's also the mother of two. And at 42, she is running her fastest marathon times and just really finding success. So it was great to catch up with Melindy. I always love talking to her. This episode of the podcast is supported by Koala Clip. Koala Clip is the best way to carry your phone on the go. It is such a simple approach. You just put your phone in the little pouch, you clip it to the back of your sports bra, and you're good to go. It stays dry, whether you sweat a ton, whether you get rained on, And now Koala Clip also has apparel. Their Ren sports bra is my favorite. It is super soft and comfortable. And it's only $39, which I think is pretty competitively priced for a high quality, supportive, very comfortable sports bra. So you all can go to koalaclip.com and use the code ANOTHER for 10% off your order. That's koalaclip.com. Use the code ANOTHER for 10% off your order. All right, friends. Enjoy my conversation with Melindy Elmore. All right. Melindy Elmore is back on the show today. Welcome to the show, Melindy. Hi. How are you feeling post-Boston? Well, I was able to get down the stairs today, so that was good. And I raced my three-year-old about 20 meters in the schoolyard, so I I let him beat me, but I could actually run, so that's that's a good sign. (laughs) Um, tell me about the course. Like, did, was it what you expected? Was there anything about the course that you were like, holy crap, I wasn't expecting that? Pretty much the whole thing. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. No, I mean, people tell you all about the Newton rollers. And I had studied that part on the map. And I knew that Heartbreak Hill would be what it is. Um, but I didn't expect the the first 30k to be as rolling as it was you know you talk about net downhill etc etc um but yeah I found it a a pretty challenging course and a challenging day overall and 
definitely lived up to it, its reputation. But sometimes, you know, you think, oh, well, it's not. I'm from BC. It's very hilly where I live. It won't be so bad. But then I realized that where I live, it's kind of either up or down, but it's not those that that those rollers that constantly break your rhythm. Um, okay, so you placed 11th and, you know, as the people watching the race from our TVs on our couches or if we're on Boylston Street or wherever, like we only see the lead pack. So we don't know, like I didn't know where you were. I was betting on you to have a good race, but I was like, where is Melindy? You know, you can track, you can't see faces, you can't see body, like any of that. So can you kind of give us a breakdown of your race and when you kind of like started uh, rolling people up and and, um, getting higher in your placing? Well, in fact, I didn't actually change pace places did you uh, not through the race no no so I'll, I'll give you the I'll give you the the cools note version so um you know we line up which is really amazing they call the uh they call Molly and Dez and Paris up um to do introductions and that's always really you know really motivating um and then unlike um actually this is the first time I've ever started a marathon where I get to be actually on the start line. I'm usually a few rows back. So that was kind of cool. It's just, you know, being right there at the start of the race because there was enough room and then we take off and suddenly Dakota is just kind of off to my right and I'm right beside her and we're way ahead of everybody, or at least it feels like I have nobody else in my, in my vision. And I'm thinking like, where is everybody? What's (laughs) going on? Um, and we're we're going down a fairly steep hill to start. And it was the field, it was like people didn't really want to get running quite yet. So it felt like um, we were we were running away from the field. It was only a few steps, but um, you think like, oh, I don't want to necessarily be leading the Boston Marathon. But, you know, then looking down at my watch, we were actually quite slow. We ran our first K in over 330 um and it it's a very significant downhill and you know you know bear in mind that the the leaders their pace is probably like their average pace was a 320 something kilometer by the time the race was over so quite slow for them um so the first 5k we probably gave up about a minute overall on what we should have come through in and we were all you know obviously tightly packed together um and it was kind of like okay when's when's this race gonna get going (laughs) um and then, and then after the first aid station at 5K, um, started people started to get a little bit antsy. Des took the lead for a little bit. I was following her because she, of course, knows the course so well that I thought she's the one who knows the tangents. Just mm. stick to her. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it started to feel all of a sudden like, okay, we've surged. And uh, my next K was like a 318. And then the one after that was, like, I don't know, a 314. And I was like, okay, no, that's going to be beyond my, um, my wheelhouse for this race as, you know, seven, eight K in after the slow start, it's still too, too much of a pickup. So at that point, the pack really fractured and it was just before nine K. So the, the top women broke away. Uh, Charlotte Purdue was in that group and Molly was in that group. And then the, the Kenyan Ethiopian uh, runners and Nell Roja was a little bit off of that. I was a little off of her. Then there were people behind me. So we completely fragmented after that. Um, and I pretty much didn't see anybody else for the entire race from 9K to the end. Whoa, that is so long to run alone. 
It was. And Dakota actually came up on my shoulder at one point just before the halfway. And she and I traded off leads a few times over the hills, but we weren't going at the same pace at the same time. So it was, it was helpful because she'd pull ahead and I'd keep my eyes on her and then I'd feel good and pull ahead of her. But I had no idea what was going on behind me. And the road was pretty empty. I mean, you know, when we start as a pack without any age group men around, um, it's quite, it, despite the fact that there's people lining the course cheering for you, you're in the race by yourself on an empty road. Mm. That is wild. I, and that's the thing. Like I had no idea you were alone for that long. That is, so I was kind of like going back and forth tracking you guys. And I could see that you and Nell were kind of close to each other, but it's, it's so hard to tell because even if you're like 10 meters, 20 meters, like you probably feel like very alone out there. Yes, exactly. And I, I couldn't, I had expected I'd be able to run with her. I had hoped I'd be able to run with her, but I just, just was feeling a bit flat, honestly. And, and I think, I think the rollers, um, zap you early, um, like, like people were, but anyways, yeah, it's kind of, it come, it becomes a release. It can, can become a really solo effort when you're not in a pack and it's, it's a long ways. At one point I thought, Oh boy, this is, you know, <laughs> this is a lo- I have a long ways to run. And then I kind of did the math and I thought, Oh yeah, I have like 30 kilometers still <laughs> to go here. So you placed 11th. Where was your mindset going into the race as far as what you wanted to do time-wise, place-wise, professional athlete-wise? Right, yeah. So, you know, respecting that it was a very strong field of, of runners in the race, I didn't want to put too many... Um, not not expectations, but I wanted to be open to the fact that I could have a very good race and not maybe achieve the result that I would hope to achieve and that I had to be open to that. And I think that's kind of what happened. I hoped I'd be higher up the field. I hoped I'd be, you know, have a, an amazing breakthrough race where I surprised myself um, because, you know, the last few workouts I had were very strong. So I felt really confident that I was fit and strong and ready to have a good race. Um so, you know, a top 10, you know, in the six to 10 position was kind of what I was hoping for. Mm-hmm. And I was hoping to run a few minutes faster. But, you know, then I got in the race and um, it was, it, it was a little bit harder for me to find my groove in this particular marathon than in the past. So I really had to resort to, you know, being very in the moment, very process oriented, very much like you need to, you know, get your fueling, get your water st- keep working the hills, not think too far ahead, um, do your best, finish the race, you know, yeah. all those things that you kind of get to when you're like, this isn't actually feeling quite like my day. So how are we going to do the best we can with what we've got today? And at the end of the day, maybe that didn't bring me the result I had quite hoped and dreamed of, but it was still a good solid day. So I'm proud of myself for, for what I was able to do. Yeah. I love that you were able to work through that mentally and still like push through and like push to the best of your ability, even though you felt like this might be my day, because I think it can be easy and more easy for people who aren't doing this as their job to but to just kind of like throw in the towel and like let off the gas a little bit and say it's not going to be today. Yeah, I mean, you just have to still remember that there, regardless, like you, whatever the day is, you want to get the most out of yourself, right? Mm-hmm. And um, you want to you want to finish the race feeling like okay, I was still 
I still didn't give up. I still, like you said, still didn't throw in the towel. Cause honestly, there were a few moments where I, I thought about it, but I'm not going to do it unless, mm. you know, I, unless you really can't walk or you're really like in medical distress or something, but it's kind of like, I wouldn't mind if this was over now. <laughs> <laughs> um, so 227.58 though, that's a new Canadian course record. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. There's um, going back to Jackie Garreau in uh, in the '80s. She actually, I think, was second in the race, and and uh, quite likely should have won the race at the time. And she's kind of a, a Canadian legend. Wow. So speaking of Canadians, I know Natasha Wodak was in the field as well. I know she didn't have the day she wanted, but you guys do some training together a little bit here and there. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. So Natasha and I actually have. Um, been running against each other for 20 plus years since we were in high school and she's um she's only a year behind me uh in school so we've crossed paths a number of times we we actually kind of offset our breaks from the sport so we we didn't overlap a whole lot until the last few years and we we live about four hours apart so we try and connect uh, during our builds a few times to do some workouts we're um you know we were with the similar team, we have different coaches, but Trent Stellingworth, who's now her coach, um, has helped me on the physiology and sport nutrition side. Um, but it's kind of like, I don't know, we're, we're just like a gang. We just like to have fun together. Uh, Natasha and Trent and Trent's wife, Hillary, who I used to race against in the 1500. And my husband, we're all friends. So it definitely makes it even more fun when we can kind of get together and we went to California for a couple of weeks and overlapped our training and and traveled together to the race. So it's it, it does keep it really fun. Okay, so your husband is coaching you now. Let's talk about that a little bit. How long has he been coaching you? He has been coaching me the whole time I've been doing marathons. So when I um, started running marathons, it was um, my my baby who's now almost four was a couple months old and I went for a run with some friends who were doing Chicago marathon and it was um you know it was kind of late August early September and I got really excited that they were doing Chicago and I came home and I said to Graham I think I think I want to go to Chicago and pace my friends they were going to aim for like 3 30 for the marathon Mm -hmm. which at that point honestly would have been really hard for me because I could barely run an hour without stopping wow um but, you know, I had a 12-week-old baby, so what do you expect? And I just kind of got caught up in the, like, oh, they're going to Chicago. It's going to be so fun. I, I'm going to have some FOMO here. And first of all, I had, like, there was no way I could actually go to Chicago with an infant. I He's still nursing. Like, mm-hmm. th- that was not feasible. But I thought for a few minutes, oh, I could find a babysitter or whatever. Anyways, Graham said, um, no, that's not going to work. <laughs> you can't <laughs> do that. But, but you could probably be ready. He was more thinking even just, I physically could not do a marathon at that point, which was true. Um, he said, you can be ready in about three months. And then he got out a calendar and he kind of looked at it. And he's like, you could be ready for Houston in January. Uh, I'll, I'll put a plan together for you. Oh my gosh. Um, <laughs> yeah. So he sat down and he kind of mapped it out and he, he progressed my, my loading from really, not a whole lot of running, right? Like I said, I was taking walk breaks in my hour long, five minute kilometer runs or eight minute mile runs. Um, and he put it together and we had a few hiccups along the way, but overall we, we made a lot of gains in those, you know, 10 weeks. And just a couple weeks before Houston, I did a workout and uh, it kind of 
exceeded our expectations. It was like just fitness was coming around right at the right time. And my, my goal had been to just run around um, 240. I thought that was reasonable um, and still going to be very challenging. When I say reasonable, it was going to be a stretch goal. And um, then I did this workout and it was just like, oh man, anything is kind of possible now at this point. And, and I went out and I ran 232 and I had a great experience. That was 2019, my first marathon. I loved it. I It felt so good. Um, my baby was just, just a about almost seven months old. He was there with us. Um, and I finished the race and Graham just looked at me as like, you got to, you got to go for Olympic standard now, which is 229.30 said, we can find two and a half minutes mm-hmm. <laughs> for you. And, and so it kind of just cemented our, our new relationship coach athlete. I mean, obviously family is first, um, and, and all that sort of thing, but it's pretty cool having him on board for this journey now because he's really invested. He's making a lot of sacrifices too for me to be able to get in my training and to balance the family and to come home and, you know, cook the dinner so I can go and train and, and, and look over, look after the kids after his day of work, that sort of thing. And, and I work as well. So having him really as part of the team and our, and my running successes is, is as much about what he's doing for me as, as anything has been really cool. Wow. That is so wild that you were able to whip out that 232. And, you know, friends listening, make sure you go back and listen to my original episode with Melindy because we, we recorded right after you ran the 224 in Houston when you set the Canadian marathon record. Right. Yeah. It, that was yeah over two years ago already. Wow. Time flies. So, so much has happened since then. And, and the reason I tell everybody to go listen back to that episode is because this whole situation is like a resurgence of a running career because Melindy was a track athlete. She was a triathlete and there's a break in there. And then you come back with this, like in this powerhouse way, running these marathons. I mean, so you're 42 now, like, is this anything you ever envisioned? No, no, it's crazy. I mean, if you had told me when I was running the, the on the track in the 1500 that I would become a, a competitive marathoner, I, I, I honestly would have just thought it was the biggest joke in the world. Hmm. Um, I wasn't someone who liked doing long runs or temple runs or mileage or any of the things that are key to being successful in the marathon. So it's, uh, it's been an evolution for sure. Now, how have you trained yourself to enjoy those long runs? I think that partly it's just 20 years of training under my belt. So now it's not so daunting to go out for a couple hours and run where, you know, when I was younger, that that was really hard to do and um, kind of just gradually built up. I think also doing a few years of competitive triathlon in the um, 70.3 and, and full, you know, Ironman distance changed both my perspective and mindset towards the long days and also built a lot, a lot of aerobic strength so that it's, it's, um, it's more enjoyable now. Nothing like a full Ironman to make a marathon standing <laughs> alone seem like not that far. It's so true. The first couple times, so this was my fourth marathon, by the way, a standalone. Um, but the first few marathons I did, yeah, it's like, you, when you start an Ironman marathon, first of all, it's the middle of the afternoon, so it's hot. <laughs> Second of all, you've just 
biked 180 kilometers. Um, I'm not sure what that is in miles, but really far. <laughs> um, <laughs> 112. It's 112, I think. 112 miles, hard, hard in an aerial position, so bent over. So you get off and your hip flexors are just wrecked. Um, you and that's five or six hours on a bike after an hour of swimming, basically as hard as you can. And you're, you know, you're dehydrated, your, your glycogen stores are depleted, your muscles are cramping, I could I can't even stand up for like the first eight miles, I'm just still in like a hunched over position from the bike. So um, yeah, a marathon after doing Ironman is, is like, it's pretty cool. You feel fresh at that start line. <laughs> <laughs> it is nice to feel fresh, yeah, and to not be all sticky and just and gross and <laughs> Oh my goodness. Okay, so we have Houston, Houston, Tokyo, and Boston. Those are your four marathons. Exactly. Okay. Let's talk about Tokyo. Melindy uh ran in her first um marathon for the Olympics uh this past year and placed ninth ninth place, Yay. top ten in the Olympics. Let's talk about that a little bit. Well, top 10 was my goals and I was thrilled that it actually, it worked out that way. Um, it was another really grueling race in a completely different way than, than Boston. Um, we went out pretty, pretty slow conservatively, like a pack of 80. So it was, it was funny. I was just in this huge, huge, huge pack for the first while. Um, and then it kind of dwindled down to maybe 40. Um, but the aid stations were just a riot coming into the aid mm. stations, just people like all over the place trying to get to their bottles, people tossing bottles. We were getting ice packs every couple K. So you're stuffing ice packs down your shirt. You're dumping water on your head. Um, for people who don't don't know this, we started at 6 a.m. And it was already uh, it was already over 20 degrees Celsius. So um, in the high 70s I think Fahrenheit mm -hmm. if I if my quick math is correct um and humid and through the course of the morning it it basically by the time we finished was the equivalent of over 100 degrees Fahrenheit over 40 degrees Celsius with the with the humidity and the heat and of course no cover no shade cover so we were just every chance we get dumping water on ourselves throwing ice down our jerseys um fueling getting water in um and I, again, I found, you know, I was with the pack for the first 18K and then the, the, the pack fractured and spent the rest of the race alone again um, with people up the road. And that in that case, in Boston, I didn't pick anyone off. It, I just stayed in the same position, mm -hmm. essentially. But this race, I picked off maybe another 10 people over the next 20 kilometers after I lost the pack because people would just implode. Mm -hmm. It was remarkable. You'd be fine. And then suddenly, and even even I struggled at one point, realizing I went from feeling fine to, oh my goodness, I think I'm going to throw up like any second within steps, and and it just gets dangerous so fast. Yeah, I mean that weather was so crazy. Did you know when you were coming in to finish that you were in the top ten? I did at that point. I didn't know until I was about 6K to go and I hit an aid station and, and our physio who was giving me water on course said that I was 40 seconds out of the top 10, oh. but I didn't know what spot I was in. And I just remember thinking, oh boy, I can't pick up 40 seconds. Like I can't run 40 seconds faster. However, I, I didn't pick it up, but other people started walking or slowed down or whatever, or dropped out. 
so I moved up two or three positions, but I didn't do anything. I just kept trudging forward. And that's all I needed to do was just keep putting one step in front of another. I mean, particularly hard, though, being from Canada, running in that heat. I I always think back to, you know, Krista Duchesne at the Boston Marathon when she placed third and like all that like Canadian running and all those like tough winters and harsh weather, like, you know, being on her side and how she was able to be so tough in that terrible weather. But like you coming from a colder climate running I know it was summer, but still, but like going to run in this heat that you're just, you don't train in often. How did you handle that? Well, actually it, it kind of is the opposite. We, we do get cold winters, but we get very hot summers where I live. So in June last year, we were under that heat dome that, that was, you know, enveloped the whole West coast. Okay. And we had, we had, um, at least a week where it was over 40 degrees Celsius. It hit 46 degrees Celsius, like 120 degrees Fahrenheit in my town in my city in Kelowna, BC. Um, and we're like, we're in a kind of in the top of a desert um, climate. So we get we get a lot of heat, we don't get humidity, but I'm used to running in heat. And I had run all June and July in, in very, very warm temperatures at home. And then we went to Japan with the Canadian team 15 days before we raced, we had a training camp in Gifu up it's in the middle of the country. Um, and it was hot, hotter and more humid than Sapporo. So we did a lot of heat acclimating leading into the race. So we actually felt really as prepared as you could be um, for the day. And we had really practiced a lot of heat mitigating strategies and had a plan down. And I think that really helped us uh, as, as the Canadian team actually fared quite well compared to a number of other countries who maybe didn't do quite as much proactive heat acclimating. Yes. You, so Natasha was also in the top 15. Who's the third Canadian that was there? Well, our third Canadian had an unfortunate uh, experience. She, she was injured going into the race. So she didn't have a a spectacular performance, but um, I think the preparation that Natasha and I did, and if you look at even a lot of our athletes on the track, um, you know, we had great performances from from Mo and from Gabriella, and you know our our whole middle distance distance program that that more or less followed various versions of this protocol fared really well. Hey, friends! This podcast is sponsored by Inside Tracker, created by leading scientists in aging, genetics, and biometrics. Inside Tracker analyzes your blood. DNA and fitness tracking data to identify where you're optimized and where you're not. We are all spending a lot of time running and pushing our bodies and knowing what's going on inside our bodies is going to help us reach our potential. You get a daily action plan with personalized guidance on the right exercise, nutrition, and supplementation for your body when you use Inside Tracker. I know one of the reasons we spend so much time running and moving our bodies and exercises because we want to feel good. Well, this will give you a way to make sure you're also putting the right nutrients into your body so that you are fully optimized. I am personally planning to run a fall marathon. So this is the perfect time to get my blood work done and check out what's going on inside with Inside Tracker before ramping up training. I figure if I'm going to spend all this time training, I might as well make sure I am fully optimized with what I'm putting into my body. So for a limited time, 
You all can get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. Just go to insidetracker.com forward slash another. That's insidetracker.com forward slash another. And the code for 20% off is another. All right, back to the show. So being in Tokyo, was there anything, like what are the lessons learned and what are the most um, memorable experiences that you are keeping with you? Being at the Olympics this past year was really a surreal experience. Um, I think because of COVID as well, like we were in, we were in quarantine the entire time. We were with the Canadian team the entire time. It didn't feel like the Olympics. Mm -hmm. We actually were staying at a different hotel than the rest of the marathoners um, because we'd had a close contact on the flight over. So they put us in the quarantine hotel, which was removed from the athlete village in Tokyo to begin with. So it actually didn't feel like we were at the Olympics. Hmm. We just, um, we were just our own little squad. We could get out once a day for training in a really uh, restricted venue. Um, and the rest of the time we were in our rooms. And so it's funny because it was the Olympics, but it doesn't kind of feel like the Olympics. So, but you do, you know, a lot of bonding as a team when you spend 15 days together with the same people going everywhere um, and made some, you know, had some great times with, with the group that we had. And we were, I feel pretty fortunate that Athletics Canada sent us with such an amazing team to Sapporo. So there were three men, three women, two race walkers, so eight athletes. And then I think we had eight staff members as well. So we had a, a physio, we had a physiologist, we had coaches, we had a manager and uh, team doctor and that that team just really rallied around us and they were so positive and so supportive and you know you just get you just kind of get into your groove where you're like a group of 16 Canadians off to go training with their ice packs and their cooler and their towels and, and um, I'll look back on on that experience really fondly because of the people that I got to spend time with. So do you ever think like what if I wouldn't have gone to Houston? Like your life, I know you guys have a big coaching business and everything and you have your boys and your life would be full and fulfilling, but is that weird to think about? Well, in fact, I think that's partly why I've had so much fun this round of being an athlete again, because I, I am, if I wasn't running anymore, if something happened, I'd be just as happy as I am running. I love running. It's it's so cool to do this sport. It's so cool to meet these people and travel and go to races and, and meet goals. But but I feel very fulfilled with um, family life and career and where I'm at as a 42-year-old person. Um, so it's kind of the cherry on top, right? It's all bonus. And it's all it's also, I feel like now I'm approaching the sport more as really as any woman with a job and children doing their best they can. And it, it happens that I can run pretty fast over the marathon distance still, but um, I can uh, really connect well with people who have, you know, similar, similar life phase to me, which is different than say when I was just purely an elite athlete, full-time running with not as much on the go. Um, but then at that point I was putting so much more pressure on myself and it was, I don't know, it was just, um, it was harder to, to maybe appreciate what I was able to do. Yeah. You know, we look at you and other athletes on these start lines and 
you know, to us, it's like you look you're you look so fit and we know you've worked so hard for this and you have a strong mind and this is what you do for a living. But like I know that there's a real human in there and that there are hard days and there are days where things are not easy and the workouts don't come easy or kids are sick or, you know, there's just like a lot going on. So when those things are happening in your training, um, what do you tell yourself? Well, actually, this build was a bit challenging in that respect because I think there we, since the end of February, right until last week, there was somebody who was sick every single week mm. for the last two months, including myself for a good six weeks there. Um, my son had neurovirus two Ugh. weeks ago. He threw up for nine days straight. I couldn't take him to daycare. I couldn't really train the way I had hoped to. I mean, I got the training in for sure, but I'm going on my treadmill. I'm going, uh, you know, odd times of the day to fit it in. My husband got COVID a week before Boston. So he had to move out of the house. So he didn't get me sick. So suddenly I find myself with both the children. One is still recovering from neurovirus. My husband is not helping with meals or bedtime or even spelling me off to go for a run. I, you know, I'm throwing the kids in front of a screen to get my run done on the treadmill. Um, this so, is yeah, two weeks like, before the race. Oh, oh no, this is a week before the race. Oh, this is, um, my God. Sunday, be, like, like eight days before when we found out Graham had COVID and, and, <sighs> you know, my, I found ticks in my kids heads embedded in their in their heads and I'm taking these ticks to the public health unit to get them tested for Lyme disease and trying to find prophylactic uh antibiotics for my youngest because he's too small to take the normal dosage you know it's just like wow you can't worry too much about this race when you've got all this (laughs) other stuff going on um but it gets done right like and I think that's why having my husband as my coach is it is still a priority for our family that we figure out how it's going to be done. We just have to be very flexible in, in how it happens. I mean, the norovirus thing alone would have been enough to send me over the edge. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Did anybody else get sick? Like, did anybody else get the nor? I mean, is that a contagious stomach virus? Oh, it's highly contagious. So I'm not sure how we didn't get sick. Wow. I'm not sure if maybe my son actually had COVID, but if you've tried, I'm sure you've tried to give your your children a COVID test now and administrating your child a COVID nasal swab test, especially when they're three and they're as strong as anything and very resistant is pretty much impossible to to get a proper sample. Oh my gosh. Wow. That's pretty wild. I mean, those are worse than everyday life stressors, if I'm being honest. Like that's, you know, there is everyday life stress, but like that's, that's, that's a lot to happen in the two weeks leading up the norovirus, your husband getting COVID, you being alone, the ticks. I mean, that is so, <laughs> so much. So like you get to the start line and you just let it all go. Well, thankfully I traveled on Thursday before the race. So, oh, and that was quite an adventure getting there, which I'll spare you all the details, but it, it was a stressful day and it culminated with arriving at the hotel at one AM and Ugh. finally getting to my room and there was somebody in my room. What? <laughs> like you opened the door and someone was in there? Yes. Someone was in the bed, poor girl. <laughs> you probably freaked her out. I I know I always wonder though, why don't people put those lock things over so that like you, I know. You I would never, especially if I was by myself, be in a hotel room and not put the lock thing over. I definitely put the lock thing over. That's actually at least the second time where I've received a key 
and gone up to a room and found somebody's in the room that I was given a key for. That's kind of terrifying, really, because like, thank God you're a safe person, right? Yes. But yeah, it would be it would be worse to be the person in the bed having someone yeah. open the door and walk in than being me 100%. walking in on the person. Hundred percent. What did you do? Oh, I just said, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. I think she was a participant in the race. Okay. Um, she she looked like one of the athletes, and I just closed the door as quickly as possible. But I'm standing there with my pizza in my hand because we had missed. I had traveled all day. I hadn't had a chance to eat all day. We arrived at the hotel, and the food service was done, and we had walked a mile to get food in the pouring rain and they didn't serve. And so finally we ordered Uber Eats to the hotel. And so I'm holding this pizza and I just want to eat my pizza. <laughs> and so now I'm trudging back down to the hotel lobby, right? I need my room key so I can go eat my pizza. Cause they wouldn't let me eat the pizza in the lobby either. Anyways. Um, Why wouldn't they let you that, eat the pizza in the lobby? I have no idea. Um, Anyways, that was the rule. So we were needing our pizza in the lobby, <laughs> which was, I was sharing the pizza with Natasha and her partner, Alan, because they had traveled in with me. So we were splitting a pizza. So now it's really hard to split a pizza when you're not allowed to eat it together. Um, <laughs> so I'm holding my three pieces and they've got the rest of it in their room. So the next day was really lovely. Friday, I woke up and I had the day to myself and I'm in the Fairmont. Uh, that's where they put the athletes. So that's lovely. And um, I just, you know, go for a stroll and get some coffee and see some friends. And for me, that's when I actually get the chance to to relax. To realize I'm running the Boston Marathon on Monday. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes I think I create stress just, just to, you know, because like, am I addicted to creating stressful situations for myself? But I actually don't. I'm not trying to get people sick. The week before my race. Right. And it's just, you know, it's just like, you know, it's family life. There's always something going on. Yeah. Talk about the training and the kids and, and the coaching and everything that you do day to day. Like what does a typical day look like? Do your boys go to childcare? Well, my oldest son is seven. He's in grade two, second grade. So okay. I, for example, you know, most days, all days, I, I'm usually up around six because that's how much time it needs takes to get everyone organized and out the door. We leave by eight. Um, so I drop him off and then I drop my son off at preschool or not preschool. He's in daycare for same thing, whatever. Um, and then every day is different. So I coach um, the university team in Kelowna, UBC Okanagan. So we have practices a few days a week. Um, so those evenings are kind of shot. I, I, I often do my second run with them as mm. part of their warm up. I also coach a bunch of people online. I'm restricting a triathlon next week here locally. So right now I'm really busy organizing that. So I had started all these things that I was passionate about before I became a pro runner again, the coaching and events and, and that sort of thing. And I don't want to let it go because I know that I'm not going to be at this level of sport for forever. And I've worked hard to kind of build up this business of mine. So, um, you know, most days, like I do my training as soon as I drop the kids off, um, a couple of days a week, I go and do strength training as well at a great gym um, and then come home and I put my head down and do all my computer work um, and men work for anything that needs to be done. Um, a few days a week, I pick my kids up and we do after school activities. Um, that's important to me that they you know, are exposed to as many great things as possible. And then I get home, go for a second run. My husband, like I said, makes dinner and then we do some family time, put them to bed. Um, and if it's not 
if it's not a night, you know, if it, if it's not a family night, then it's a night that I'm at the track coaching. Wow. What time are you doing that second run? It's got to be pretty late, huh? Well, it really depends on the day. Um, I'd say usually, usually it's like 4.30 or 5-ish. I, I really like to get runs in before dinner and we, um, we eat dinner together as a family every night unless I'm coaching. That's uh, important to us as a family. So um, I usually go run while Graham gets dinner ready. And then I come home and he says, you've got five minutes to shower. Dinner's being served. And he's awesome that way. (laughs) I love it. I love that dad's doing dinner. That's so good. You know, but my husband, um, he is just a great partner and he is uh, a very equal um, parent in this, in this parenting project of ours. Yeah. I mean, I feel that we are headed more in that direction, you know, as time goes on and, um, I feel the same way. I, I do think I, I'm physically with my kids a little bit more because he works more hours than I do. But um, yeah, I feel the same way and I'm, I'm super grateful. It's kind of funny when older generations look at us and think it's crazy. Even my dad, you know, he's like, he gets confused sometimes with how much my husband does with my kids. And I'm like, come on, it's 2022. <laughs> totally. Yeah. I was talking to a friend about that too. And she said, oh, um, that her friend's husbands need to be told what to do with their children, Mm -mm. right? Like given a list or whatever. I'm like, I don't tell my husband what to do. I just leave the house. He knows. And he might not do it the same way as me, but uh, that's fine, right? The kids are safe and happy and healthy. So that's all that matters. Totally. I know my sister-in-law, if she leaves the house with her, with leaving the kids with her husband, I know she's got a list and I'm like, Peace. Like you'll probably yeah. do this better than me in all reality. I'll see you in a couple days. <laughs> totally. Um, I know your boys are, so they're three and seven, right? Yeah. I loved your post the other day. You're like, I'm just trying to keep people alive over here. Like I've saved this kid's life um, oh maybe gosh. three times today. I don't know if that was the other day, but it was someday. And I was thinking, oh my gosh, isn't that the truth? Some days I'm just like, Thank God I've kept you all alive. Oh, 100%. Yeah, some days are just like, well, everyone got fed today and we made it. We're, we're putting them to bed and we made it. And there, there's still four people in this house. And we didn't give anyone away either today. <laughs> how do you balance? This is something I struggle with as a parent sometimes. Like, how do you balance, um, you know, just like days like that, right? Where it's like, we did good. Every, you know, every like you said, everybody's fed and everything, but also like wanting to like do it all well because, you know, like you want to do it well. Like I want, I want to provide my kids all those opportunities that, you know, you mentioned with after school stuff and things like that. I want to be present and emotionally available, but like some days I just can't do it all. And some days I do feel like I do it well. I'm not sure there is a balance, but I'm just curious your feelings on all that. Yeah, it's hard, right? It's some days feel effortless and you you can go to bed thinking, I did a great job today. I really rocked it. Um, And then other times, you know, it's like, oh, I think I just give me a passing grade and and everything. I feel like Mm. I didn't do the best I could coaching. I didn't feel like that. I, I, you know, I I cut my training short today for whatever reason. I was grumpy with the kids today. Um, And then I go to bed. (laughs) That's usually a sign that it's just time to go to bed and wake up fresh the next day and put it all behind you. Um, 
And it's hard because we have to figure out where to let go. And it, and when you've got high expectations in all areas of your life, basically, uh, there's not really one place where you can let your guard down, right? You, you've got, you, you need to be a good parent. You need to do a good job at your job. You need to run well. So it all has to figure out how to coexist. Yeah. I just, I was at Target yesterday with my oldest. It was so lovely going to Target with just one nine-year-old. Um, oh. And there was a sign that said, the sun will come up. And I was like, do I need to buy that sign? I think I need to buy that. <laughs> like I ended up not buying it because I think I'm going to look on Etsy to see if like I can find like, you know, like a, you know, small business where they're selling them because I'm sure there's signs that say the sun will come up on Etsy. Um, oh, I'm sure. You know, yep. for $50 more, but that's okay. Um, but I was like that, that is like my motherhood mantra. The sun will come up. I usually say it's a new day tomorrow, but I love, I think I might transition it to the sun will come up. It's very optimistic. Yeah. <laughs> I was walking my three, almost four year old to school with my son, my older son today. And he was skipping along, holding my hand, skipping happy, happy, happy today. And I thought, you know, my day is so much based on his mood if I have a good day mm-hmm. and he's he's been a challenging kid um and I realized also that he was actually not feeling well for a really long time because he was so grumpy and clingy and whiny and needed to be carried and everything was upsetting him and it was making me so anxious the last few weeks and then I realized today well first of all he wasn't actually feeling well so now I can see that he's feeling well and two boy, if your kid is happy, it just makes your whole day so much easier. Oh, 100%. That's why it's so hard when they're not happy. I know. Yeah. The um, But yeah, the, the, um, the Etsy sign is a good one. I think if you find a link, let me know. Okay, I will. Um, what, what do boy, the boys think about mom? You know, does, do they know how, how cool that is that you place ninth at the Olympics? I think they do. I mean, it's just kind of what they know, but you know, my, my older son, he came home from grandma's yesterday. She picks him up on the days I coach, picks him up from school and had a bouquet of flowers that he asked her to pick up for me to go (gasps) in my vase that I received from the Boston marathon. He needed flowers for the vase. That is the cutest thing ever. I love that. Yes. So they're pretty sweet. Um, Oliver, the, the younger, the three-year-old, he, he keeps calling it the bo- that I just came back from the Boston Olympics. The Boston Olympics? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, did it feel as hard as the Olympics? It was hard in completely different ways. Um, so yes and no. I mean, it's really cool, the Boston course, of course. I think the thing that I loved about Boston, and this is what people love about it, is just you can feel how important that event is Mm. and how much legacy there is and how many, how meaningful it is to the state of Massachusetts and the the greater area of Boston and all the runners coming in, you know, my flight from, from Kelowna, I have three flights to get to Boston from Mm. Kelowna and people are wearing their Boston jackets on the way there. They're so excited to be going back. Um, Getting a boss, getting into Boston as, as an athlete is a big deal. Um, So you're kind of sharing this energy with people where you you realize like, this is really important, this event on so many levels. And I, I get to be part of it. And, and 
that's really cool. And the Olympics are cool, but you don't have that same energy where it's there every single year, where it's embraced by the community, where it's also something that other uh, runners are achieving to are aspiring to be a part of. Right. So um, that's what I love about these, these community, these huge community events. Yeah. Did you feel like you were able at all to connect to the everyday runner while you were there? Oh yeah. hundred percent. I mean, we're everywhere. And, and I have lots of lots of Canadian friends who are running it and lots of, uh, it's, it's so important to people. And, and it's almost like, you know, Natasha and I joked, you're, you're not actually a marathoner until you run Boston. Ah, uh, that's so good. Do you have, um, like, so Boston was obviously on your list. Like you wanted to run the Boston marathon. Do you have any others that you for sure want to make sure you do? Well, I'd like to do all the majors now. Um, especially New York sounds epic as well. Um, I'd love to do, you know, Toronto waterfront marathon because that's a big Canadian marathon. I'd say those ones are kind of bucket list items as well. And then of course, you know, Paris Olympics 2024, that would be a cool one. Yeah. So, I mean, like you have your sights set on that. Like you have, do you have any kind of like long-term vision of where you see, um, retirement, not that that's happening anytime soon, but I'm just curious, like you're keeping up your other businesses so strong. You've got a lot going on. Where do you see this going? Yeah, I'd see, I would say through 2024 Olympics would kind of be the goal I have in mind. Okay. And it's actually only two years plus a few months away. So it's quite a reasonable time frame. Um, I think at that point I'd have to really step back and evaluate, uh, what my reasons and my purpose would be in the sport continuing forward and not to say that I won't continue to be a runner and I won't continue to participate in races, but do I want to be as all in mm. as this forever, especially, you know, being realistic, I'll be, um, 44 and a half years old in Paris. I, I don't expect that at 48 years old, I'll be running the times to qualify for the Olympics. I think that that's a reasonable, um, not, not to say I can't run well, but you know, let's be realistic here. Yeah. And even just like the load on the family, my kids are getting to the age where I'd like to shift the focus where the weekends isn't about mom's long run. And it's about Charlie's soccer tournament or going camping or whatever else we are doing as a family. Okay. Do you struggle at all with like the getting older thing? Like knowing that at 48, it's probably not likely that you're going to bust out a 224 marathon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, never say never. Right. Right. Um, <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, I don't really feel like I'm getting older. It's just like, I, I haven't really felt a plateau or a a change in my workouts are still as good or better than ever for this distance. Um, I think for one thing, having had a seven year break in my competitive running career really helped the longevity of, of my sport and even just my interest in the sport. I think if I'd continued right straight through forever, then I might not be at this place today. Um, but certainly I don't think that you have this dramatic decline in fitness or anything like that at a certain age. It's probably a, a more gradual kind of, or, and, or more, you know, maybe more proneness to injury, that sort of thing. Um, but I'll say at 42, I still feel as good as I did at 32 when it comes to this kind of stuff. That's amazing. That's, I love hearing that. Um, okay, Melindy. Well, last question after running your first Boston marathon, 
What is your advice to someone running the course for the first time? Well, my advice is that everyone talks about those Newton Hills and everyone talks about the long downhill before the Newton Hills that, that breaks up your legs. But there are a lot of uphills as well in that first section of the course that I completely underestimated. And I got onto and I thought, oh my gosh, there's not supposed to be a hill here. The hills are supposed to come later. So I, I think, um, you know, just just really realizing that it's a challenging course from start to finish and not just the latter part of the race. Mm. Yeah, what mi- what mile or I guess you would think of it in kilometers where was were you first like what is this hill doing here oh boy they're they almost come right away um <laughs> I, I i definitely think between 10k and 20k so let's say six miles and 12 miles mm. that i thought ahead and realized that this was a hard course and I was going to be tired before I got to the Newton Hills. Mm. And that's okay. And then I just accepted it and was like, okay, let's, you know, one foot, at, one step at a time, one kilometer at a time, run the K you're in, run the mile you're in um, and take it as it comes. But I, I, I kind of in my mind thought, oh, the first part of the course is kind of a give me and yeah. post through that. And then you get to the hard part. And, and then when, when I got into it, I realized, no, it's, it's actually all kind of hard. Mm. Yeah. I, I was thinking that too. I, I was thinking six miles. I feel I, I haven't ran it in a few years, but I was thinking six miles is around when you first get like a little incline and it's like, wait, what are you doing here? Yeah. It's not supposed to be hard yet. It's supposed to be downhill. Yeah. Um, well, Melindy, I, I was rooting for you. I was betting on you and cheering you along the whole way. So um, I know you wanted the top 10, but 11's great. And you, you persevered through a race where you felt like not the greatest. Yeah. And that's, that's cool too, right? That's what keeps us coming back for more. So I'm, I'm happy. Um, I'm, I'm thrilled. I had the opportunity to run this iconic course and, you know, during the race, I thought, Oh, I'm never doing this again. And now here I am today going, okay, so how do I fit in this race again next year? <laughs> <laughs> when you want to do all these other majors, but you can do some of those majors like after retirement, right? Oh yeah, exactly. And then, and then actually like my friend Lauren Fleshman ran in wave four. I'm sure a lot of listeners know her and follow her. Um, and she ran for, for girls on the run. And she said that her experience was epic and amazing and inspiring and so much fun. And so I think, yeah, that like I will be, more than happy to join her and do it that way one day as well. I love that she ran in wave four. That's so awesome. I actually didn't, wasn't following that. I don't think I even realized that she ran. Yeah. And she ran pretty well. She, you know, her, her longest run leading into this was at one seventeen miler. Um, and then she went out in, I think she said like one thirty one for her first half and knew, Oh boy, I'm going to be in trouble. Second uh, half. But she hung on and what did she run? Did what it. was her time? Um, I think she ran 312. Okay. I'll take a 312 in Boston. Dang. Seriously, right? Oh, that's good. Um, All right, Melindy. Well, good luck with the rest of your coaching today. And I hope you can get some downtime and your kids all stay healthy. You know what? Thank you. I appreciate it. I can't imagine with four boys how chaotic your house is. I think of you all the time. I love I love your, your, your tweets and your Instagram because it's just... <laughs> It just reminds me of my lifetime's 
it's not it's not like times two it's times exponential the more child children you add right yeah I mean I you know what though I just love talking to other people who have like rowdy kids it seems like your kids are a little bit rowdy like mine and that that just I have a kinship to people who have rowdy kids (laughs) oh yeah 100 percent. they're they keep it real Oh, all right, Melindy. Well, thank you. Speaking of those kids, I'm always the last mom to pick up line. And I don't know if the preschool moms just think, uh, uh, teachers think I'm a hot mess or roll their eyes at me, but I got to go pick them up. (laughs) All right, go, go, go sprint down there and pick up your kids. Thanks, Melindy. Okay. Thanks, Lindsay. Talk to you later. Bye. All right, friends, thanks for being here today. Thank you, Melindy, for sharing your story. Congrats on a great Boston. Hey, if you aren't already following Melindy, go follow Melindy on Instagram. She is Melindy Elmore over there. You can also find me personally on Instagram. I'm lindsayhine626. You can find this podcast network, Sandy Boy Productions, on Instagram. We'd love to connect with you there. And we have a great Facebook group. We'd love for you to join and connect with our listeners and the community. It's just called I'll Have Another with Lindsay Hine. Don't forget to go sign up for that Mother's Day 5K to support the Donna Foundation, doing great work to support those walking through a breast cancer diagnosis and supporting groundbreaking research. Run that 5K with me. Run it easy. Run it hard. Run it with your neighbors. But go support this great organization. Go to mdyw.breastcancermarathon.com to get registered. Use the code Lindsay10 for 10% off your registration and join team. I'll have another. Friends, thank you for being here. Have a great rest of your day. Two episodes this week. Whoop, whoop. Have a great day and we'll see you Friday.